I feel like the words of that song is how I feel this morning. I'm not going to be enough unless God helps me this morning. If you've been attending since September of last year, you'll know that we have been in a lengthy series providing an overview of the whole Bible, dividing it into 11 sections under the acronym Casket Empty. The 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books, the whole Bible. God is the author of the Bible, which tells a unified story of God's creation, relationship, and redemption of men, starting in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis, finishing in heaven, at the very end of the book of Revelation. One redemptive narrative. And God is the main character in the narrative, obviously. His character and his attributes are revealed from beginning to end. There are not two gods, one of the Old Testament and one of the New Testament, we'll discover. He also reveals his purposes for men. God enters into relationships with individuals, but also with his people. Initially Israel in the Old Testament, but then with the church in the New Testament. The title, Casket Empty, strange as it initially appears, with a little bit of thought, obviously points to the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus, whose death and resurrection is central to the Bible's redemptive story. Now, if many if you started coming since September, and many of you did, you will have had a clipped version of this. Some of you will only have been here for the E, the Y, some T, some pity, some M, T, some empty, some tempty, some et empty, cat empty, sket empty, ask it empty. Well, some of you hopefully will have been here for the whole time, casket empty. Wherever you stand on that spectrum, I've got good news for you and bad news for you today. <laughs> today I'm going to provide an overview of the entire Bible, the entire series in one sitting. I hope you brought your sandwiches. It's going to take a while. The good news is we will catch everybody up to the same place. The bad news is there is quite a lot to cover. And um, if you've read the Bible through a few times, this will be kind of like a, a memory reminder of you. If you've been here for the whole season, we'll see how well, our teaching elder actually did see or not, whether or not you remember anything that he taught us. He's, of course, away uh, on vacation this week. Um, but if you don't know the Bible very well, and, it's, and the Old Testament in particular is a bit of a mystery to you, it might be a little bit harder. But I encourage you to take in <clears throat> what you can of this overview, because I'm confident that God has something for each person in this room. Let's therefore pray to that end. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those that have studied it over the years and particularly for the authors that have put together this particular uh, overview of your scriptures. Lord, we come to you and we acknowledge again that this is the only book under which we sit. It's the only book that has authority over us. We also acknowledge that we need your Holy Spirit in order to understand it. And Lord, you alone know where each person in this room stands or each person listening on line stands in terms of their comprehension of the redemptive story that, that we're about to unfold. And we pray, Lord, that wherever we are today, that we receive from you exactly what you have prepared for us to hear and let everything else go, as it were. So come, Holy Spirit, and administer your truth and uh, your grace to us as we review your, the Word of God. Amen. So we're going to start by reviewing uh, the acronyms letters you're free to shout them out if you know them. C stands for creation. A stands for 
Abraham, S stands for Sinai, K stands for kings, E stands for exile, T stands for temple. Some of you started well. I noticed you slipped away a little bit. Now let's try the New Testament. E stands for expectations. Nobody got that. M stands for Messiah. P stands for Pentecost. T stands for teaching. And the Y stands for yet to come. Casket empty. There it is. So we'll start with the Old Testament casket. Sets the 30. I want to just say one thing. For you bean counters, and I know I'm one of them, so there'll be somebody here bean counting. The 11 sections, you're going to get very fearful how long it takes to get the first few done. It gets quicker, so don't break into a sweat when we're still on A 30 minutes into this. We won't be, I don't think. Casket sets the 39 books of the Old Testament into their correct time period and historical setting. Remember, the order of the Old Testament is not chronological. Let's also remember that there are three types of literature, historical, poetical, and prophetic. The casket timeline is honestly worth its weight in gold. I wish we could project the whole timeline up onto the screen. In fact, they do make a huge banner that would have strung from one end to the other, but it would have been up all year. Um, and I hope some of you have this timeline. If you don't, I strongly urge and encourage you to get it. I'll do the best I can without it behind me to try to give you the overview. It's worth its weight in gold. Here we go. C stands for creation. This section covers the first 11 chapters of Genesis. God creates the world and living creatures. The Lord God, Yahweh, is creator, and he alone is God. He creates human beings, Adam and Eve, importantly, in his image and likeness. They're to rule over his creation, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. They have life in a perfect garden, the Garden of Eden, and perfect fellowship with God in that garden. A tree of life and a tree of knowledge are located in the center of the garden, and the symbol on the timeline in this section, the C section for creation, is the two trees. God commands Adam to not eat from the tree of knowledge or he will die. A serpent representing Satan lies to Eve in the garden, declaring that death would surely not result if they eat from the uh, tree of knowledge. In fact, they would become like God. Adam and Eve fall for the lie, eat of the tree, and God comes in judgment for their sin in, of disobedience. There is grace from God, however, as Adam and Eve do not die instantly, but they are banished from God's presence. They're banished from the garden. Soon thereafter, Adam's son Cain murders his brother, and clearly sin and death have entered the world of humanity. We then learn of another later son of Adam, Seth, whose line of descent will lead us to a man called Noah. Leading up to the Noah account, we read of sin increasing throughout humanity, such that God eventually decides to send a flood to wipe out all but one family of the human race. Noah's family is in fact saved by grace. He is instructed to build an ark to escape the flood, and there is a new beginning. And God makes his first covenant with humanity, the so-called Noahic covenant. We need to pay attention to the covenants established by God as they're very important. Remember, Old Testament actually means Old Covenant, and New Testament means New Covenant. So there's one very key Old Covenant, and then there's only one New Covenant. In this first covenant, God declares that he will not destroy humanity ever again, even though sin continues after the flood. 
This covenant is a one-way, unilateral, or unconditional covenant, which does not depend upon the response of men. That will not be the case for all subsequent covenants, as we shall see. A new beginning, but soon enough we find that sin is still present. People don't worship God. They ignore Him. They seek to build a name for themselves by building the Tower of Babel, or Babel. Faithful to His promise, God does not wipe them out, but rather scatters them in judgment. Well, this time, hope for humanity is introduced uh, through the line of one of Noah's sons, Shem. Shem's lineage will lead us to a man called Abram, who is introduced in Genesis chapter 12, and A is the second letter of the acronym that we're going through. So what are some of the brief highlights? God created man for fellowship with himself. Men and women were to live in perfect relationship with God, a loving and intimate, highly accessible relationship with one another. But God gave men the choice to obey or not, and we, of course, chose to disobey. Aided by the enemy of God, Satan, to be sure, mankind was separated from God because of sin. Physical death enters the world. But note the clear evidence of God's grace, even in these early chapters of Genesis. So the second section, A, stands for Abraham. The second section covers a period of 2100 to 1450 BC, and the remainder of the book of Genesis from chapters 12 through 50. God calls a man called Abram, later to be renamed Abraham by God, out of a place called Ur in southern Mesopotamia. Abram was a worshiper of idols and clearly showing that God did not choose him for his merit, but out of grace. God calls Abraham to trust him, to take him to an undisclosed land, later to be identified as the land of Canaan or the promised land. God promises to be with Abraham, granting Abraham his presence, echoes of the Garden of Eden. Abraham is obedient to the voice of God, leaves Ur, and begins a journey of trusting God. If you can see the map at all, he starts on the far right. The red line takes him up a very long journey that he, is, he embarks on. So we learn that Abraham and Sarah, his wife, are elderly and that they have no children, for Sarah is barren. So it's truly arresting when we learn that, God's promise, that God promises Abraham many descendants, too many to count. Importantly, God says that the purpose of Abraham being blessed of God is so that he will be a blessing to the nations of all the world. And this is a theme that will run through the whole Bible, that God blesses his people in order for them to be a blessing to others. God also promises that kings will come from Abraham's line, and we later learn that this will come through the line of Judah, one of Abraham's great-grandsons. Remember the phrase, line of Judah. It's another thread running through the whole Bible. Then specifically, God makes a further important, but at the time, totally obscure promise, namely that, uh, that the nations would be blessed by Abraham's seed a singular noun, offspring. And this we will learn is a specific reference to Jesus who will be revealed fully 2,000 years later. And God confirms these promises to Abraham by making a covenant with him. This covenant is again a one-way covenant dependent only upon God. Abraham believes God's promises and we learn that his faith justifies Abraham in the sight of God. This faith is also a gift of God. And Abraham's faith anticipates that people from all nations can be in right relationship with God by faith in Jesus. 
not based on works or by the extent to which they comply with God's laws, but solely as God's gracious gift. Hence, the symbol at the top of this section of the timeline is a wrapped gift. God causes there to be a long time period in which his promise to Abraham relative to whether he'll have a son is tested. We learn that Abraham and Isaac take matters into their own hands, and their firstborn, Ishmael, is actually born through a union by Abraham with Sarah's female servant. God is clearly displeased about this in terms of God's promises and God's redemptive plan. Ishmael is rejected as the answer to God's promise, yet promises are made that Ishmael will also be the father of many nations. Fully 14 years later, Isaac is miraculously conceived and born. The covenant and promises of God given to Abraham will flow through Isaac. In due time, God affirms that same covenant that he had with uh, Abraham, with Isaac. In the next generation, we find out that it's not through Isaac's firstborn Esau that the promises of God will flow, but through Jacob, according to the election or choosing of God himself. God affirms the same covenant with Jacob as had been given to Abraham and Isaac. Now, Jacob has no merit in himself. He's actually a pretty scuzzy character. But after an overnight encounter with God, God gives Jacob a new name, Israel, and from his 12 sons, the nation of Israel is established. At the end of Genesis, we read that the sons of Israel will move from the land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Canaan, to Egypt on account of extended famine. There, the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph, who was sold into slavery and deemed dead by his father Jacob, will act as a deliverer. See, he's risen to vice president, as it were, of all of Egypt with extraordinary power and favor. This foreshadows Christ as savior, who will not arrive for another 1,500 years. It reveals a pattern whereby one chosen by God is rejected by all and is killed, yet who is resurrected and used by God to save God's people. Some observations from this section. We learn that the line of Abraham is impotent without God's grace, that Abraham and his line is prone to deep patterns of sin. They are far from a model family worthy of favor from the God from God. Yet God provides the miracle of birth and demonstrates his grace in redemptive ways despite their sin. God allows and shows himself to be a God of grace, enacting one-way covenants of grace. So the third section is Sinai. It covers the period 1450 to 1050 with the books that are shown on the slide, and I'm not going to read them all because they get longer and longer by each section. We jump forward about 400 years to where the people of Israel have multiplied, are enslaved in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the then world. Of course, Jacob's son, Joseph, has long been forgotten. And so we're introduced to a person of Moses called Moses as the chosen leader and deliverer uh, for Israel. In the Exodus from Egypt story, God miraculously delivers his people from slavery after a series of plagues which demonstrate God's astonishing power and dominion over all of the created order and over life itself. The Israelites' journey out, uh, journey out of Egypt leads them to Mount Sinai. You probably can't see this, but it's, if you can, it's a red line. There's Goshen or Egypt on, up on the far left, and they move down to the bottom of the V-shape is where Mount Sinai is, if you can see it. 
Now, this is a vitally important encounter between God and his people. See, God meets people, God meets Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. The presence, his presence is symbolized by smoke and fire, a cloud covering the top of the mountain. He reveals that Israel is God's treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. His people are set apart to be a kingdom of priests or intermediaries between God and men, a holy nation set apart, a light and a blessing to all nations. The Ten Commandments, and there's a lot more than Ten Commandments, are given directly by God to Moses. And so the two tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments are inscribed are the symbol given at the top of the timeline for this period. God then makes a covenant, the Mosaic covenant with Israel. This time, the covenant is different. It's a two-way covenant where God's blessing depends upon Israel's actions. This covenant will remain in effect throughout the entire Old Testament and is the old covenant referred to by the title of the Old Testament. God promises to bless Israel if they will obey his laws, but to curse them if they disobey them. The blessings and curses are fully described in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. The blessings are wonderful, the curses are not. Now let me remind you that Todd likened what was going on here to a marriage contract with God as the husband and Israel as the wife. God cherished his people and sought their well-being in an array of wonderful blessings, but he required faithfulness in return. The Israelites, they're smart, agreed (laughs) to God's law, but then immediately literally immediately make an idol and worship it instead of God as their deliverer from Egypt. And there's no getting around mankind's proclivity for sin. God, of course, is angered. Moses intercedes on their behalf. God responds in grace and agrees not to wipe them out nor to leave them. At Sinai, God also instructs Moses to build a tabernacle, a kind of a portable temple, Now, this is important so that he might symbolically dwell with his people. Note the echoing back to the Garden of Eden. The presence of God with his people is symbolized by the presence of a cloud, smoke or something, some cloud which descends, descended over the central place of that tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, symbolizing the presence of God. At Sinai, God also reveals his character to Moses by declaring himself to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love, yet not able to overlook sin. We'll later find out that sin needs to be atoned for in order to provide forgiveness and to grant a restored relationship with God. A sacrificial system is is inaugurated, which included the taking of the life of an unblemished, spotless lamb to atone for sin. This principle of the need for atonement for sin through the sacrifice of a life foreshadows the atonement for sin that Christ will offer through the sacrifice of his life on the cross of Calvary. Now, God's people prepare to enter the promised land under Moses. Spies are sent out to survey Canaan, but with the exception of Joseph and Caleb, the spies display a lack of trust that God can prevail against the apparently formidable people inhabiting the promised land, despite all that God had done in the exodus from Egypt. The people listened to the majority of the spies and failed to trust God. God responds by banishing them to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But during that time, he provides for them food 
and guidance through the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Towards the end of the 40-year period, Moses will die, and hence God uses Joshua, one of the two spies who did trust God, to lead them to conquer the promised land with miraculous displays of might and power. They're left in no doubt as to whose power is providing the conquests. Despite everything they see of God's miraculous grace, the Israelites soon start worshiping idols again, those present in the conquered nations and surrounding nations of the promised land. A cycle follows in which things go badly for Israel, followed by their calling out to God who raises up judges or deliverers, only for them to forget God again. And eventually Israel will ask for a king so that they can be like the other nations, believing that that will be a better solution for their governance. That takes us then to K, K for kings. The fourth section covers the period 1050 to 586 BC, and the book's noted on the slide. The people of Israel demand a king. The first king is Saul from the line of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but he disobeys God and, and is rejected by God as king. God then chooses the youngest son of the family of many sons, a man called David, and appoints him to succeed Saul. Notice again the doctrine of election. Not based upon human choice, David was not Saul's son. David was in fact from the line of Judah, the seventh son of Jacob, who God renamed Israel. Now the symbol of the royal crown at the top of the section represents the royal line of Judah. It'll come clearer in a moment. David is tested over 15 years before he's actually appointed king. And during this time, Jerusalem is established as the holy city and capital of Israel. And at that time, it is a united kingdom, a united monarchy. God establishes a covenant with David called the Davidic covenant. This was a one-way covenant resting on God alone. And it's an incredibly important one, aren't they all? But David is promised an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom. God promises that he will be a father to David's son, and that David's son will be identifies as, identified as God's son. It turns out that these promises would one day be revealed to point not to David's immediate offspring, but to Jesus, who will come 1,000 years later. Jesus was the son of David by lineage, the son of God, whose attributes and kingdoms are, kingdom are foretold in these promises. We learn that David is declared a man after God's own heart, but is far from perfect. His sins of murder and adultery are breathtaking after reading of his faithful devotion to God. Yet we learn of God's grace and mercy towards David despite his sin. Strangely, it will be through the illegitimate son of David's adulterous uni union, Solomon, that the lineage of Judah will flow to Jesus. We would never have chosen Solomon. But God chooses Solomon. Solomon builds the magnificent temple in Jerusalem from a blueprint as issued by God himself. It has similarities with the tabernacle, which it replaces, and takes seven years to complete. Again, it represents God's presence, God's continued dwelling among his people. God's presence and God's glory physically is manifest in the form of a cloud coming down again upon the Holy of Holies in the temple. But Solomon, while starting well, eventually falls into a pattern of sin, leading to idolatry and worship of foreign gods 
and under his son, Israel's kingdom divides into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This happens in 930 BC. Now for me, this is where Kaskut, the Casket resources and timeline become incredibly helpful in summarizing hundreds of pages of scripture and keeping us straight on all the kings that will follow Solomon. The northern kingdom is called Israel after the 10 tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah, which is made up of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. We'll take a quick look at the geographical map, if we can put it up. The northern kingdom to the north in red, and the southern kingdom, Judah, if you can see it, to the south. So we'll let, um, I want to take a snapshot of the timeline, if we can show that because this is where it really becomes very helpful to have the timeline. And for me, as who read the Bible several times, you get incredibly confused by which king belongs to which kingdom. But anyway, we'll start with the northern kingdom. On the timeline, a red crown actually, actually represents these kings, and they're not from the royal line of Judah. There are 19 kings in the northern kingdom. They rebel, every one of them, against God. They embrace foreign gods. They set up altars for worship of two golden calves, declaring that they represent Israel's gods. They embrace child sacrifice and engage in every conceivable abomination to God. God is demonstrated to be incredibly patient. Over 210 years, he sends prophet after prophet, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, Amos, with messages pleading for their repentance and return to obedience to God. God reminds Israel that the Mosaic covenant had both a promise of blessing for obedience and the promise of curses for disobedience. But Israel's northern kings will not listen. Eventually, the curses come to pass. The northern kingdom, its capital, Samaria, is overthrown by the Assyrian emperor, Empire in 722 BC. God's people are taken into exile and foreigners are resettled into Samaria and the surrounding region. Now let's move to the southern kingdom made up of the two tribes of Israel, most importantly the tribe of Judah. This con constitutes the royal line of descent from David, the line of Judah represented by the blue crown at the top of the timeline. One of the most incredible things, just to see the visual representation of the pathway of lineage to Christ. There are 19 kings and one queen in the southern kingdom. Most of the southern kings fall into the same pattern as the northern kings. However, there are a few bright spots in the story when kings like Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah return to, to God, lead the people in covenant renewal. But God has to show compassion and grace, patience and forbearance for a very long period of time over a long line of wicked kings. God sends prophets like Micah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah to call Israel back to himself. Again, with increased volume through these prophets, the warnings of the curses of God for disobedience are given over, listen to this, 350 years. In great sadness, we witness the continual rebellion of the southern kingdom. The living God cherished and loved his people like a faithful and steadfast husband. But Judah and Israel is compared to a faithless wife, a harlot even, disdaining her husband with her unfaithfulness of idolatry. Eventually, the southern kingdom receives her just reward, and over a period of 20 years or so, starting in 605 BC, the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar overthrows the southern kingdom of Judah 
and destroys Jerusalem. The people are serially deported to Babylon. The first deportation includes the prophet Daniel, the second the prophet Ezekiel, and the final one includes the last earthly king of the southern kingdom, Zedekiah. We should note, by the way, that alongside these warnings of judgment, God also gives messages of hope. First of all, the exile will last but 70 years. But it also includes prophecies. Prophecies about a restoration after judgment a long way hence, accomplished through a suffering servant who will vicariously bear Israel's sin and guilt. The promised suffering one, of course, will come from the line of Judah and will, of course, come to fruition through Jesus, the Messiah. What are the insights? Israel had the Lord God as its king, whether they called him king or not. He warned them to not ask for a king, but Israel rejected God as their king, and God capitulated to this request knowing that the outcome would be bad. After Saul, he raised up David, a king that would foreshadow another king that would one day be established with an everlasting kingdom, namely Jesus, born of the line of Judah, born of the line of David. Secondly, that whatever we may have perceived from the Old Testament as that God is somehow an angry and vengeful God, in fact, we read of his incredible patience with the rebellious people. If it were us, I'm convinced that within five years we'd have wiped them all out. But God waits fully 400 years after he was rejected as king and um, issues thousands of warnings with great specificity of exactly what would be administered for disobedience. So here we are standing on the threshold then at the end of the two kingdoms. E stands for exile. Covers the period 586 through 539 BC. The people of the northern kingdom of Israel were deported first by the Assyrians and much later the southern kingdom of Judah were exiled in a series of deportations by the Babylonian Empire. I don't know if you probably can't see it, but Assyria right in the middle and Babylon down to the right a little bit. Vast, vast empires. Now the curses of the Mosaic Covenant had finally come upon, upon Judah and Israel. And the symbol of the vulture at the top of the timeline for this section represents these curses. Now prophet Ezekiel saw a foreboding vision of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple which had been profaned by Judah's sins. This, of course, actually happened as Jerusalem is leveled and the temple destroyed at the beginning of the period of exile. The deported prophets Daniel and Ezekiel announced restoration after 70 years of exile when God would bring Israel back to the promised land. But even more importantly, David and Ezekiel also announced that God will one day make a new covenant with his people, this one will again be an unbreakable covenant, one that is effected and safeguarded by God alone. Note that. God promises to give his people a new heart and spirit, cleanse and forgive their sin. He will raise up a righteous Davidic, Davidic king, pour out his Holy Spirit upon them, and the temple will be rebuilt. This, of course, refers to the new covenant that Jesus will inaugurate, which is the new covenant of the New Testament. During this time, the prophet Daniel also interprets dreams of four beasts which will rise and fall. They represent the four earthly kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, which will then be followed by the establishment of God's everlasting kingdom, far more than an earthly kingdom. In that vision, Daniel is taken to a heavenly scene 
where surrounded by thousands of angels, one like a son of man appears in the glory and takes up his throne. And it later becomes clear that what he is seeing is the glorious and exalted throne of Jesus with the son of man, Jesus' favorite expression of himself, ruling over God's everlasting kingdom. So the final section of the Old Testament is T stands for temple. It covers the period from 539 through 430 BC in the books noted on the slide. So in 539 BC, the then leader of the Persian Empire, Cyrus, defeats Babylon and amazingly issues a decree that the Israelites be allowed to return Jerusalem to Jerusalem and to rebuild the ruined temple. The symbol at the top of the timeline is naturally a temple. This is the second temple, remember, not the first uh, temple. Just want to make certain that can be confusing sometimes. This is not Solomon's temple. This is now the restored temple. Now, like the deportations into exile, there are, in fact, a couple of waves of return from exile. The first one, when the temple begins to be rebuilt amidst opposition, it wanes, and God has to um, send the prophet Haggai to invite the people to build his house again. But interestingly, even though the temple is eventually completed, the Lord does not, the glory of the Lord does not return to the temple. There is no cloud that, is, that signals God's presence descending over the Holy of Holies. And this is significant because during this time, the prophet Zechariah has visions of a royal branch of David who will build God's temple. God will dwell in the midst of his people. The king who is coming with salvation will be mounted on a donkey and Jerusalem will once again become a blessing to all the nations. The royal branch of David, the coming king and the builder of God's temple, of course refers to Jesus Christ, who will come about 500 years hence. A second return from exile uh, occurs in 458 BC. A priest called Ezra returns. The law, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament covenant is read aloud in the presence of all the people. There's confession and covenant renewal and signs of hope, though they're short-lived. A few years later, under Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, and there's another renewal of covenants uh, by the people of God. And again, signs of hope and a new beginning are present. Yet devastatingly, the people almost immediately fall back into their wicked, sinful ways, embracing idolatry and rejecting their God. What are some of the insights from this section? We see that despite all God's grace, it never seems to get any better in terms of his people's response to him. We begin to see that we need something much different, a new covenant to replace the old, a new system which would atone for sin, a new heart to be given to God's people, a new dwelling place or temple for God. Now you may remember that Jesus himself claimed to be the temple. And you may also remember that after the new covenant, Paul writes that we as individuals and the church collectively are the temple of God. The Old Testament finishes on an unbelievable downer but with a glimmer of hope provided by the last Old Testament prophet Malachi, stating that the Lord will return to his temple and that a prophet like Elijah will come first to announce the coming of a new kingdom and to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's the Old Testament. Congratulations. You got through it. New Testament, empty. We'll be quite quick on this. Empty. The first 
Firstly, a quick reminder on 27 books of the New Testament. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One history book, Acts of, Acts of the Apostles. 21 letters to the churches. You can see them all arrayed up there. They actually should be in red, but I can't see them in red. And the one book of prophecy, which is Revelation. All right, we'll jump into the acronym. E stands for expectations. This covers the period from 430 BC to the birth of Christ, includes parts of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, but also some historical literature that's outside of the canon of Scripture uh, in Jewish literature, 1 through 4, Maccabees and Josephus in particular. For me, this was actually one of the uh, more enlightening sections of Casket Empty because it deals with what's known as the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And it covers the 400 years of the Persian, Greek, and Roman empires foretold by the prophet Daniel under revelation by the living God. Imagine that. God told with that level of specificity what was going to happen. Israel lives through the, this period of incredible change with increased suffering with each successive kingdom. The Jerusalem temple is rebuilt but plundered by the Greeks. In due course, Israel will fall under Roman rule. The region of Caesarea will be founded and the temple rather lavishly renewed. God appears to be silent. Israel is expecting a coming Messiah in anticipation of the Old Testament promises. I want to just highlight to you, these are all promises from Old Testament scriptures. The coming of a son of David to be restored to the throne. The coming of the kingdom of God. The vision of the coming of a royal son of man. A new atonement for sin. A new covenant. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The blessing of Abraham being extended to all the nations, the Gentiles. The resurrection of the dead, a final judgment of the world and evil, and a new creation of the heavens and the earth, all from the Old Testament. And this is what the people were waiting for. So M then leads us to Messiah. This section covers a period from the birth of Christ to AD 33. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, obviously. The gospel or good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God is told. Angels announce his birth, his role as Savior, and the establishment of his kingdom, which will have no end. Through genealogies, Jesus is validated as Son of God and Son of Abraham of the royal line of Judah. Conceived by the Spirit of God, born of the Virgin Mary, his birth and childhood validate many Old Testament scriptures given regarding his origins. While he's growing up, the political climate in Israel is going from bad to worse under the Romans. Also, among the Jewish religious leaders, several competing sects arise. The Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots, and they, zealots, and they seek righteousness through competing interpretations of the Old Testament scriptures. So the geopolitical landscape's a mess, and the religious landscape's a mess. Then... The word of the Lord comes to man in a man called John, John the Baptist, who represents the one like Elijah predicted by prophecy in Malachi who comes to prepare the way of the Lord and his kingdom. He points to Jesus as the promised one. Jesus is baptized by John. God then fills him with his Holy Spirit and declares Jesus to be the Son of God, and is sent, Jesus is sent out to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness, triumphing of of course, 
Jesus begins his ministry. He calls his 12 disciples. He proclaims directly and through parables, accompanied by all kinds of signs and wonders, that the kingdom of God is come. He demonstrates great authority in his preaching and increasingly attracts the scrutiny of the various religious authorities, including, of course, the high priest in Jerusalem. It eventually becomes clear that Jesus is claiming to be God, which is blasphemy in their eyes and worthy of death. In the fullness of time, by the will of God, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, entering into it riding on a donkey. He teaches in the temple courts. He celebrates the Passover or Last Supper with his disciples. He makes it clear that he is fully in control of all that will happen, but they don't understand. During this meal, he teaches them about the new covenant in his blood, the new covenant promised by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What is this new covenant? The new covenant inaugurated by the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary is that we as sinners only need to confess and believe that Jesus' sin, that Jesus' death fully atones for our sin, and that faith in his sacrificial act and his resurrection brings life to us. We're given the Holy Spirit by grace. We're made new creations. We're clothed in his righteousness. And we're hence able to enter into the holy of holies of God's presence each and every moment of our lives. One day, we will pass from this life into his eternal presence. Those are the implications of the new covenant. We now can enter the dwelling place of the living God as he enters the dwelling place, place of our hearts. After the Last Supper, Jesus is betrayed to the Jewish leaders, Jewish religious leaders. So he's arrested, he's tried, he's sent to Pilate, who had, who had Roman authority to issue a sentence of death, and he is sentenced to death by crucifixion. This by the will of God. Jesus had stated that he would lay down his own life, none would take it from him. And we learn that as the spotless Lamb of God, his death is the atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. He takes the curses of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, upon himself, though not for his sin, but for the sin of man. He died, was buried, yet on the third day, he rose again from the dead, demonstrating that his sacrificial death was sufficient to atone for sin and appease the righteous wrath of God against sinners. He promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, commands his followers to make disciples from all the nations, and ascends into heaven. That is the end of the biograph biographical section of the New Testament dealing with Jesus as the Messiah. Let's one more time note that Jesus exactly fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of prophetic utterances concerning the coming Messiah that were contained within the Old Testament. P stands for Pentecost. This section covers the period from A.D. 33 to about A.D. 65, and it's exclusively covered in, in, uh, in the book of Acts. Pentecost is, of course, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, as predicted by the Old Testament prophecy. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, the church grows first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and eventually throughout all of the known world. We accompany the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, culminating in his journey to Rome, albeit as a prisoner awaiting trial. 
So T stands for teaching. This section covers a period from AD 33 to about AD 95. Contains all the New Testament epistles or letters. The letters were written by various authors and they're presented by Casket in chronological uh, time of writing. I've never seen that before personally. Very helpful. As the title of this section indicates, the purpose of God giving us these letters is to provide teaching of doctrinal truth about God, Jesus as Messiah, justification by faith, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, that both Jewish and non-Jewish Gentile believers are one, that obedience and service to God is the outcome of faith by Christians, and on and on. There's also teaching about the return of Christ in glory in a second coming, not this time as Savior, but as judge, which takes us to the last letter Y, which stands for yet to come. This covers the period from AD 95 to the return of Christ, whenever that will be. It's covered in one book, the book of Revelation. If you were here the last two weeks, you'd have heard this sermon. Now, revelation or vision is given to the Apostle John, and it's a revelation about Jesus Christ. God reveals the present and future glory of his son Jesus. The exalted Son of Man is Lord of the church. The exalted Son of Man is worshipped in heaven as the Lamb of God, whose atoning death purchased people from all salvation. So echoes back to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. The exalted Son of Man releases measured wrath as judge over all the earth, and he gathers to himself his people. We read of the spiritual battle between God and Satan. We learn of the Son of Man counterfeited by Satan in the beast, the bride of Christ imitated by Satan in the whore of Babylon. The exalted Son of Man, Christ Jesus, executes final judgment and ultimate victory over sin and death and Satan. A figurative new Jerusalem descends like a bride for her husband. Redeemed humanity, all those who bleed through an exercise of faith in God and his redemptive plan, have access to the tree of life and live in God's presence in heaven forever. An echo, very distinct echo, back to the Garden of Eden where it all started. All sin, death, and sorrow and grief are banished. There's no need for sun or moon, for God himself is light the river, of course, flowing from his throne gives life to the, new, to the tree of life from which all the redeemed shall live. And notice there is no need for a temple because heaven is the temple of the living God. The Bible closes with these words from Jesus and our response to them. I am coming quickly, and we respond, Amen, Lord Jesus, come. Congratulations, we have now done the New Testament. In about 40 minutes, we covered the whole of the Word of God. Most of you are still awake, appreciate that. The power of the Word of God. How, how do we respond to an incredible story like this? I was telling Liz on the way over here, I need about another 15 minutes to pull all of the stuff together. I'm not gonna do that to you. I'm gonna trust that the Spirit of God will cause you to relate to that which is needed for you to relate to this morning. For some of you, it would just be worship. For some of you who have not yet received Christ, it might be, I need to get in on this because there's something about being in the presence of the living God that I don't have. And if that's you today and you don't know how to receive Christ and his eternal life, will you come and see me? 
or talk to a friend who knows Jesus and they'll help you. But as I sat with how we might just conclude this, how could we apply this? For most of us in this room, we are those who believe. How do we apply this individually? And I think God wants to deliver, uh, since God is a God who delivers on all his promises, I think he wants us to sit with uh, what he is saying of us, of us, and what he is saying to us. So first, what he says of us, I'll read the scripture, is that we are his treasured possession. We are his covenant people. And the second one is what he says to us. And it's a message of assurance that we will make it to heaven because he is the one who's responsible for fulfilling the new covenant. I hope that's not lost on you. He is the one that is responsible for for fulfilling the new covenant. So, as the worship team comes up, can we just bow for a moment in silence? Then I'm just going to read these two scriptures, these two themes over us, and let the Lord speak to our hearts one more time. So let's, we'll have a moment of silence. Just ask the Lord, what is it that I heard today that you want me to receive If you know and love Jesus, then you are part of the redeemed. And this is what the Lord says through the Apostle Peter. For you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. That's what he says of us. And this is what he says to us through the Apostle Paul. God, he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's worship him in song.